The Art of Being Human presents podcast on the work of Byron Katie. This episode is part of the Why the Work Works series, which focuses on inspiring, explaining and enhancing your praxis through a theoretical understanding of how the work works. This is session one, your map of reality with Ernest Holmes Svensson. For more podcasts on the work of Byron Katie, go to www.theartofbeinghuman.dk slash podcasts. And now, session one, your map of reality. Hello. My name is Ernest, and I am the voice that will be traveling with you if you decide to join me on this journey into a better understanding of how the mind works and how to end suffering. To me, of course, I'm more than just a voice, and I'm very happy to share a little of my story with you in the hope that it'll serve you and make me a bit more three-dimensional in your mind. But I will invite you to notice first how you have actually already built an image of me in your mind. Just from these few seconds of me talking, and maybe you've seen pictures of me, maybe you've read some of my work, but you've created an idea of who I am, a story about me in your mind. And as I give you this additional information, that story will develop further and get more fixed, but it will remain just a story. A story that is, of course, very different from the story that I have about myself, or the story that my wife or my children have about me. And an interesting question we can ask ourselves is, of all these stories about me, which story is the right story? This is something we are going to return to later on. For now, suffice to say that I don't believe there is any real story. Or rather, I believe that all stories are indeed just stories. Let me tell you a little about myself, though. I am a certified facilitator for the work of Byron Katie, and for the past 20 years I've been working full-time on matters of the mind, teaching, training, coaching, facilitating. I've written a couple of books, among them the bestseller Being Present, which formed the basis of me establishing my own company, it's called The Art of Being Human, through which over the years I've worked with thousands upon thousands of people, supporting them in growing out of limitations and suffering and into freedom, peace and joy. I think, as far back as I can remember, I've been occupied with questions of this human existence of ours and how best to handle it. In the beginning, it was mainly the whys of it. Why do we exist? Why is there suffering? Where does it all come from? Is there a God? those kinds of things, but pretty quickly I began to develop a keen interest in the house also. I like to say that in the entire history of the universe, with all of its intricate and amazing designs, from atoms to galaxies, from waves of light to dark matter, the most advanced design nature has ever come up with is the human mind. This is the tool beyond all tools, the most complex and wonderful creation ever seen, 
and is handed out to us at birth without any hint of an instruction manual or an explanation of how it works, this is left to us to figure out on our own. And this, sometimes, has rather complicated consequences. So one of the big interests of my life has been to figure out how does the mind work? What does that user manual look like? How can we solve these difficulties that we seem to create for ourselves and live a life that is peaceful, happy and fulfilling? This interest has taken me to many different places. And along the way, I have stumbled across many of the incredibly diverse practices that we as a species have developed over thousands of years in our attempts to get to the bottom of these questions. And I've tried out a surprising number of them, too. This isn't necessarily something I would recommend to others. On the one hand, I've learned something from all of them. But on the other hand, Many of these practices differ significantly in terms of quality. Some of them are rather odd, others are overly cumbersome, and a handful are decidedly unpleasant. Some are so old that it's tempting to call them obsolete, while others are so new that they've yet to prove their worth. And many of them are simply not suited to modern life in the 21st century. At some point, though, I came across the work of Byron Katie. And of all these various practices that I've experimented with and learned from over the years, this one in particular impressed me. It is both extremely simple, profoundly deep, relatively easy to grasp and then to develop. Once you know it, it's a tool you can use on your own without any support, but above all, it allows you to tap into your own wisdom rather than relying on the wisdom, experience, and knowledge of others. And this last part really is for me the most alluring aspect of the work, because in my experience, the only answers that will really work for you in the long run are the ones you have found yourself. So I took up the work as my practice, and for the many years I've done the work, so far it hasn't disappointed me both in terms of my own work, where it has taken me to places I didn't even know I could go, but also in my work with my clients. As I support and facilitate them, time and time again, I'm amazed at the depth and wisdom this simple process can unlock in all of us. Which is why today the work is my primary tool, and why I love to share it. Now, on a more practical note, I have split these podcasts into different series. This is the Why the Work Works series, which focuses on theoretical aspects of how the mind works and why the work is so efficient. And I present these thoughts not because they are part of the work as such, and I want to make that very clear. The work is just a tool. It's just four questions and a sequence of turnarounds, and then, of course, your answers. But I have found over the years that sharing some of the points of view that develop as you do the work can be very helpful for others and can add perspective and depth to people's work and even lead to some very valuable insights in their own right. In other words, it's by no means necessary or required that you listen to this series before you move on to the How to Do the Work series. And yet, I would definitely recommend it. 
It seems to be an efficient way to step into the work and quickly develop some depth in your own praxis. When speaking about the human mind, there are several different languages available to us. We can speak in psychological terms, we can speak in philosophical terms, we can speak in religious terms. They all have different advantages and disadvantages, drawing out certain aspects and repressing others. I notice that when presenting the work, I like coming from a biological point of view, speaking from the world of nature and what scientific experiments have told us about how the human nervous system operates. It's not that this language is more true. It just happens to be mine. And if you have other preferences, I hope that you will simply translate what I say into your particular tongue. And with that, I think enough is said in terms of introduction. It is time to dive in. And we dive in very simply. We dive in by asking a question that could almost sound like the beginning of a joke. And I guess it is, in a sense. It's the great cosmic joke. And it goes like this. A farmer, a geologist, and a real estate agent are looking at a plowing field. Are they seeing the same thing? No. They're looking at the same thing, but they're not seeing the same thing. The farmer sees some excellent topsoil where he could plant a lovely crop of wheat. The geologist sees an exciting moraine landscape, and the estate agent sees a piece of land where you could put a stunning villa with a view over the bay. They're looking at the same thing, but they're not seeing the same thing. Why not? Because they have different, what I call, maps of reality. They have different backgrounds and experiences, and this means that they perceive what they're seeing completely differently. The geologist calls upon his knowledge of how the landscape was formed millions of years ago. The farmer calls upon his knowledge of crops and plant cultivation, and the estate agent calls upon his knowledge of the property market. This ability to operate with unique maps of reality is one of the key ingredients in our success as a species. But it is also the cause of all of our problems. Let me explain. The evolutionary process is a process of adaption. Those organisms that respond best to their surroundings have the best chances of survival. And most organisms have spent millions of years to evolve and adapt to their particular environment through specific sets of responses that are stored in their genes. Like the ability of plants to turn towards the sun, or the ability of bees to find their way home. In animals, we call these innate responses instincts. And animals that work only by using instincts can only survive in the environments in which their instincts suit. A slug can survive in the woods and in our villa garden because it is here its instincts work. It has no resources to survive elsewhere since it cannot learn or develop new strategies. To overcome this limitation, nature began experimenting with a new and more advanced type of nervous system which allows organisms to learn from their environments. A dog is a good example of an animal that works in this way. On the one hand, like the slug, a dog is guided by a large number of instincts. But on the other hand, unlike the slug, it can also learn new behavior. That's why we can teach our dogs to follow simple commands. 
But obviously, it's not for our sake that dogs have developed this ability. From an evolutionary point of view, it's about adaption and survival in unfamiliar environments. And unlike the slug, dogs are able to adapt to new surroundings. In fact, second to humans, dogs are probably the mammal that has achieved the widest spread on the planet. From the African savanna to the Greenland ice sheet, dogs have found their niches and adapted to life. But dogs are still limited by their genetic memory, and the plasticity of their brains only goes so far. Particularly, dogs are not very good at learning from each other. And so, evolution took another step and developed its biggest success so far, the human being. Our ability to think and learn from our environment enables us to develop unique and complex patterns of behavior and, what's very important, share them and pass them on to new generations in a much faster and far more nuanced way than storing instincts in the genes. And this has led to an unprecedented ability to adapt. There's hardly any environment we humans cannot operate in, whether we are born into a primitive tribe deep in the Amazon, among Persian merchants at the time of the Roman Empire, or in a small apartment in Tokyo in the 21st century. We are able to internalize the beliefs and worldview we grow up around and develop a unique map of reality that is as fundamental to how we operate as innate instincts are to a slug. Human beings, in other words, are born with a readiness to be programmed by life and adapt to even the craziest of environments. This is our greatest gift, but it is also the cause of all of our problems. Because sometimes the environments we adapt to are not very healthy. Sometimes they are so filled with built-in contradictions that it's not even possible to adapt successfully to them. And sometimes... When the conditions in our environments change, it takes a while for our map of reality to catch up and for a while we become, in effect, like a slug on the beach. The human mind is an open system. It is extremely sensitive to its environment. And like with any open system, this makes us vulnerable. The slug is simple, but it is robust. We are complex and adaptable, but consequently we are in constant danger of breaking down under our own weight. I don't know this for a fact, but I'm pretty sure that slugs don't get depressed or have separation anxiety. They just live and then they die. We are different. Our understanding of our environment is constantly changing. Our brains are permanently under reconstruction, and how we perceive the world is entirely dependent on what is present in our map of reality as it is the case with the farmer, the geologist, and the real estate agent. None of them are more right or wrong. They simply have different maps of reality, and so they perceive the world very differently. From a purely biological point of view, our map of reality, of course, is something that exists in our brain and nervous system. But I find that a good way to illustrate it is to say that it's like a filter that exists between us and the world, which we perceive the world through, and which tells us what we are perceiving. It has taken you your entire life up until this moment to develop your map of reality to the exact point where it is now. 
and without it, you would have no idea what was going on or how to survive. Our map of reality, in other words, is the basic framework within which everything we experience is organized. It holds our entire understanding of the world, including the underlying rules that determine what we can and cannot do in specific situations. It is to our thinking what grammar is to language, the backbone of our perception of what's happening and the framework for the actions we think are possible in a given situation. And as such, our map of reality is the real cause of all of our problems. Let me repeat that. Your problems are never, in reality, caused by reality. Because reality is never a problem. Your problems are caused by your map of reality. Or more precisely, by the mismatch between your map of reality and reality as it is. Let me give an example. Imagine a couple who completely agree on one thing. Respect is the foundation of every good relationship. If things are going to work, it is crucial that both partners respect each other. They decide to move in together, living like that for several months, but then they break up and they move out. And now she's sitting in a cafe with her friends shortly afterwards, and they of course ask her what went wrong. And she answers, well, we broke up because he simply didn't respect me. Because every time we had a discussion, he would raise his voice and become really loud and use bad words and speak in a harsh tone. And I mean, that's not respectful. If you respect someone, the least you can do is address them in an appropriate tone. Naturally, her friends agree. There's a significant overlap between their maps of reality. That's why they're her friends. At the same time, up in the apartment, her now ex-boyfriend is talking to his friends. And they ask the same question, what went wrong? And he answers, well, we broke up because she simply didn't respect me. Because every time we had a discussion, she became totally controlled and reticent, almost polite. And that's not respectful. If you respect someone, the least you can do is trust them enough to honestly express how you feel and let them see where you're at and what you're thinking. The obvious trick question here is, of course, which of them is in the right? To which the only response is that both of them are, or neither, if you prefer. The problem is that it entirely depends on what their respective maps of reality look like. It depends on how they understand respect. Is it respectful to speak nicely and politely to each other, or is it respectful to honestly express your feelings? There are only subjective answers to those questions, but whatever your answer is, if you hold on to it when it does not match reality, you get into trouble. I call the elements that constitute our map of reality beliefs. In the case of the couple, they misunderstand each other because they have different beliefs about what respect is. In the Middle Ages, it was a common belief that the earth was flat. Today, most of us believe that the earth is round. Some people believe smoking is harmful. Others believe that it is not. Some believe that the changes in our climate are caused by humans. And some believe that they are not. And obviously, what you believe about this will have a huge impact on how you act. As such, our map of reality and the beliefs that constitute it form the framework that our thoughts and actions operate within. 
If our thinking is like a complicated marble maze, then our beliefs are the walls that determine where the marble can roll. Everybody has a different set of beliefs, which is why our trains of thoughts are different. There are possibilities and limitations in one person's marble maze that don't exist in another's. One of the key challenges when it comes to our map of reality is that it's very difficult for us to see. Just as we can't see our own eyes, bite our own teeth, or hold our right hand with our right hand, we can't see our map of reality because it's already the lens through which we view the world. It's embedded into our brains in ways that are completely beyond our control, woven into our most fundamental perceptions of the world. The culture we were born in, the beliefs that shape the people around us, the history of our nation, its great stories, even the landscape and the climate affect our experience of the world in ways we cannot influence, but which have a crucial influence on us. Language is a good example. Each of the approximately 7,000 languages that exist have their own particular characteristics and structures. We are born into them, and they help shape the way we think and perceive things. Hebrew, for instance, is very gender-specific. Even the word you takes a gender in Hebrew, while Finnish has no grammatical gender whatsoever. As a result, children who have grown up in a Hebrew-speaking environment tend to be aware of their gender a whole year earlier than their Finnish peers. Similarly, Aboriginal Australians are incredibly good at orienting themselves geographically, and this too is connected to their language. They don't use words like right or left. They use absolute directions instead. So the fork isn't to the left of the plate, it's southeast. And the girl standing to the north of Peter is my sister. They have an ever-present internal compass that they use to orient themselves in space because it's necessary in order for them to communicate. So our map of reality has very deep roots in us, much deeper than we are able to reach or even see. And on top of being partly invisible to us, it is also self-reinforcing. It works like this. Our maps of reality are built on our apparent experiences. So the more experiences we have with something, the more certain we are that it's true. But equally, the more times we experience something, the greater the likelihood that we'll notice it again the next time. This means that once we've seen something once, we are more apt to notice it a second time, making us even more certain of it, and thus increasing the likelihood of us seeing it yet again, and so on. If, for example, I'm going to meet a group of people, and I've been told beforehand by a friend that one of them is one of the nicest people I'll ever encounter, then it's very probable that that's exactly what I'll see. I'll notice how calm he is and how he generously gives everybody else room to express their opinions. If, on the other hand, he'd been described to me as a nasty guy who's always on the lookout for mistakes and who loves to criticize, then that's what I'd see. And I'd be able to confirm that he's sitting there smiling arrogantly, silently noting everybody else's slip-ups. The point is, of course, that his behavior is the same. I'm just interpreting it differently because I'm using what I think I know to understand what I think I see. And next time I meet him, I will continue to perceive him along those lines. 
because now, of course, I know what he's like, making it even easier for me to see how two-faced he is. So I can now observe how he pretends to be friendly on the surface, but thankfully, I've seen through his charade, so I don't let myself be taken in. Which is also what I explain to my friend next time we meet, thereby reconfirming her perception of him too, because now we are two people with the same experience, so it must be true. In this way, our beliefs are constantly reinforced. If we think there are too many immigrants in our country, then we'll notice all the newspaper articles about problems with immigration. If we think that fears about smoking are exaggerated, then we'll latch on to the stories we hear about people who've smoked their entire lives and never had a day's illness. If we think that public transport is inadequate, then we'll remember all the times when our train was delayed. This, of course, is no accident. On the contrary, it's a genuinely elegant design on nature's part. On the one hand, we have a greater gift for adaption than any other species that has ever existed. On the other hand, the self-reinforcing nature of the system helps to make it more robust, so we don't have to up sticks and reorganize our whole understanding of reality every time the world behaves differently from what we expect. In large-scale terms, it's a brilliant system. It works. But on an individual level, it comes at a cost. We can easily end up stuck in negative patterns of perception that we cannot escape. It's like this. Imagine that you and I were going to a party, each of us bringing a video camera. Before we go, we agree that you will film everything fun, enjoyable and friendly about the party while I'll film everything that's boring, sad, and unpleasant. We do exactly that, and the next day we meet to compare our recordings. Will it look like we went to the same party? No. Our recordings will feature the same surroundings, of course, and many of the people we film will also be the same. But one recording will look like it was made at the world's most awesome party, and the other will look like a recording of every hostess's worst nightmare. These recordings are like the stories we construct out of the material the world offers us. There are so many things going on inside and around us all the time that we have to constantly sort through enormous amounts of information. A completely normal ride on the subway offers the opportunity for an almost infinite range of films depending on how we edit them and what we focus on. And this editing goes on all the time. Our nervous system is constructed to pay attention to things that are important. But what is important? That depends on our preconceptions. It depends on our beliefs. It depends on our map of reality. As a consequence, two people can in principle live the same life, but they will experience it very differently because their maps of reality, and hence the stories they superimpose on the world, lead them to completely dissimilar perceptions of it. In that sense, we all live in our own reality. It's like what I pointed out in the opening. You have a story about me now, which is your story. And it's based on an interpretation that builds on your specific map of reality. The tone of my voice, perhaps, or the way I talk, remind you of certain elements from your past, and you base your story about me on those elements, where another person with other beliefs would build another story. 
and it is impossible to say anything categorically about which story is the right one, just as it's impossible to say which half of the couple is right about what's respectful. It all hinges on our own beliefs. Who we are and what we experience are indissolubly linked. Looking at the world, one could say, we are seeing ourselves. All of our beliefs spread out right there before our eyes. Five people looking at me will see five different persons depending on what they believe about me, depending on their different maps of reality. Which brings us to the work. As I said, our problems are due to inconsistencies in our maps of reality because of our limiting beliefs. Our challenge is that we cannot see or change our map of reality directly. What we can do, however, is look at what we project onto the world, and by working with these projections, we are in fact working with our map of reality, opening our minds and changing our beliefs. And that's what the work does. How I will explain in much greater detail later on. For now, here are the main points. A farmer, a geologist, and a real estate agent looking at a plowing field will see very different things. This is because they have different maps of reality. They have different backgrounds and different experiences, and so they interpret and perceive the world very differently. This is part of a very advanced strategy for survival, which has made human beings the most adaptable species on the planet. We are born with an openness to be programmed to adapt to just about any environment. In terms of the large-scale survival of our species, this strategy is a great success. But it comes at a cost. When there are elements in our maps of reality that do not match reality as it is, we suffer, because we end up in a fight with reality which we are always bound to lose. We become like slugs on a beach. The solution is to adjust our maps of reality to better fit reality, so that our actions and our interpretations match what is going on. As in the example with the couple who break up unnecessarily because they misinterpret each other's behavior. We cannot, however, consciously change our maps of reality. We cannot suddenly decide to believe something we do not believe. If we believe that our partner is not being respectful, we cannot use willpower to make ourselves believe that actually he is because, obviously, he isn't. Something else is required. And that something else is the work. A unique process that will undo our limiting beliefs and open our minds to reality as it appears now. I believe that the Earth is round, for instance. I haven't actually experienced the Earth as round firsthand. It could be that I'm wrong. It could be and I don't think that's very likely, but it could be that there exists some great conspiracy intended to make me believe that the earth is round when it's actually flat. But that doesn't really bother me, because to all practical purposes, it works for me to believe that the earth is round. It fits into my general understanding of the universe, and it doesn't get in my way when I travel or live my everyday life. True or false, my belief that the earth is round is, in other words, not causing any suffering for me. But there are other beliefs that are more problematic. If, for instance, I believe that there is a certain way you need to talk when you're being respectful, then I might get into trouble. 
because if my girlfriend talks to me in a different way, I might conclude that she doesn't respect me, which could make me break up with her and cause all sorts of pain in my life, all because I have a fixed belief around respect. Maybe the truth is that she does respect me, she just has a different view on communication. When our minds are closed, when we are caught in certain beliefs, it's like a river filled with big, clunky chunks of ice colliding with each other and causing all sorts of havoc. But as our minds open, the ice melts and the river becomes fluid again, agile, free, adaptable enabling me to perhaps sit down with my girlfriend and ask her about how she feels, educating me on her view of the world and the fallacies of my interpretations, and ultimately dissolving my pain and saving our relationship. I will talk about this in much greater detail later on, but there are a few more steps I would like to cover before I begin to explain exactly how the work works. So I invite you to a little bit of patience. If you can't wait, you can check out the How to Do the Work series, which is available on my website. And you can also check out thework.com, which is Byron Katie's website. My suggestion, though, is that you hold your horses and listen to the next episode in this series on Why the Work Works, which is called The Most Important Thing There Is to Say About Anything. Because that's exactly what you're going to get. I want to warn you, though, it will take you even deeper down the rabbit hole and show you that it's not only your perceptions of the world that cause you suffering, but in fact, the whole world as you know it, problems and all, is entirely your own creation. Until we meet again, I remain the earnest of your mind, and I hope to see you back for another episode on how the mind works and how to end suffering. The work of Byron Katie is copyrighted by Byron Katie International. You can read more on www.thework.com. For more podcasts like this one, visit theartofbeinghuman.dk. And feel free to contact me if you have any questions or comments to this podcast. You can find my contact information at theartofbeinghuman.dk or you can simply send an email to ernest at kavm.dk. That is ernest at kiloalphavictormike.dk. Thank you for listening.